Basically, every single person we met with said, this is not going to work, but if it did, it would be amazing. Welcome to No Limits. I'm Rebecca Jarvis. Each week, we're talking to women playing at the top of their game. So how are they doing it? Whether you're looking for answers or you just want to hear a good story, you're in the right place. Here with me today is a woman who has completely reimagined how we discover beauty products. It started back when she and her co-founder were students in business school. Both women had limited experience in technology and beauty, and they were told by lots of major investors that their idea would never catch. So they took to cold emailing beauty industry executives. And those must have been some pretty compelling emails because they led to the founding of the company we all know today as Birchbox. I want to welcome the co-founder and CEO of Birchbox, Katya Bochamp. Welcome to No Limits. Thank you for having me. I think back to the first time we met, it was only a couple of years yeah. after you founded the business. That's true. How far Tell you've come. Days. <laughs> um, and I was doing some digging on you. So you grew up in Texas. Right, in El Paso. You, I read, wanted to be the president of the United States. It's the first job I ever said I wanted, which I think is strange. It's a strange thing to say. But I don't know what it was. It just seemed like... That was the top, and I've always kind of been wired to be really ambitious. And did your parents, do you feel like your parents helped foster that, or was it just somehow coming from inside of you? I think it was probably a little bit of both, um, a little bit of nature, a little bit of nurture. I, my, When I said it, everybody was like, well, great, let's do this. <laughs> I mean, I think that was really supportive. Um, and definitely nobody laughed at, you know, such a young person making such a bold statement. Um, and I, I think those are the things that I'm sure definitely impacted me and made me think it was possible. Mm-hmm. Definitely. That reinforcement and people thinking that your ideas are solid ideas. Solid ideas. <laughs> do, do you still want to be in politics at all? No. I can't say that I do, but I will say that... Um, given everything that's happening and all the, you know, being more surrounded by politics than I feel like I ever have just in just the everyday dialogue, it's actually just opened my mind to think how could somebody get involved? I obviously have a very full-time job, but it definitely has me thinking about what I can do because I think it feels important. When when you look back at your progression into the company you and Haley Barna meet at Harvard Business School. Mm-hmm. Whenever I was at her apartment getting ready for an event, I would see her beauty. And I knew that she was such a you know, casual, naturally beautiful, not somebody who was overly fussy or trying to have like such a great beauty assortment. And yet she had the best things. And I was always, you know, kind of confused. Like, why would you have this? I know you would never make the time for it. And she would say, well, my best friend is a beauty editor at Condé Nast and was basically going into the beauty closet and curating a, an assortment for Haley over time. So Lucky it was, girl. I know. And for both of us that weren't obsessed with beauty, we both thought, I mean, everybody who realized what Haley had thought, like, this is a jackpot. <laughs> so when we 
when we came up with the idea for Birchbox, you know, as just casual beauty users, we used this idea of a beauty editor best friend as what we wanted the service to feel like. We wanted it to feel very human and very warm. And from a business perspective, we were just so kind of perplexed that beauty sales weren't happening on the internet in 2010. And as business school students, we thought there are billions of dollars at stake. And why not us? Why can't we figure out how to start the beauty company of the future that can really effectively sell beauty on the internet? How long was it before you started sharing the idea with others? Immediately, like that day. (laughs) And what were the reactions? Very mixed. Um, Supportive, just in general of trying, but a lot of people skeptical that they would pay for samples. That was probably the biggest point of feedback of people saying, well, aren't samples free? Um, and you know, Sephora then, was around. You could go into a Sephora at the time and still yeah, can and get department stores and department and, stores and ask for something for free. You can. Yeah, you absolutely can. Um, and some people do. And I'd say that people who love beauty feel totally comfortable doing that because they spend a lot in beauty. They know the people working there. They know that they are like they actually know what to ask for. For example, people like me um, and actually the majority of women we don't necessarily know what we're missing out on, what we want, and we certainly aren't prioritizing making the time to go up to a sales agent and say like, hey, excuse me, I'm not going to buy this yet, but um, could you you know, get me a sample? So what we found was for the majority of women, this was something that actually resonated so quickly. We found product market fit instantly. We hit our five-year target of revenue in seven months. What what was your five-year target of revenue? I can't say that. We thought it was big. You know, in retrospect, I think all of our investors thought we were sandbagging, but we just assumed that the barrier to paying for sample was real. You know, and we thought, okay, well, we're going to have to slowly train consumers about why, why this is valuable. And we were just wrong. It went, product went viral. We grew very quickly. And, you know, we created a new category in beauty and we created the next innovation in beauty and selling prestige beauty, which is kind of surreal to think about. Before Birchbox, the biggest shift that had happened in beauty selling was specialty stores. Um, But the next thing that, you know, everybody's talking about, all of the major companies, is this new way of accessing consumer. Um, And it's really surreal to think that we started that six years ago um, and how legitimate it is now. The subscription business. People hadn't really thought about at the point that you started sending out the Birchbox monthly subscriptions. Yeah. Well, you know, obviously there's magazine. There was always kind of fruit of the month. We didn't invent subscription. And I certainly don't think subscription is a business model. But using subscription as an aspect of the model, as a revenue model, and as a way to engage consumers in a lower risk ask of them, you know, a lower risk, lower price um, way of discovering product. Yeah, we we created that. And and the beauty industry lends itself really nicely because they have always had samples or, you know, sampling has been around for decades. So there was already this idea that trial was really critical aspect of the purchase process. But we just had to change the conversation from saying, 
um, samples are something that are really great for loyalty, which is how samples had been used historically to saying samples can be used for customer acquisition, for new customer acquisition. And we can not only, you know, use these, but we can personalize them so we can ensure that we get the best ROI. And that really, you know, over time, it was hard. That was probably the first really hard thing was convincing brands. but To, oh, to put their products in your service. Yeah. I mean, for a variety of reasons. Really? So what, okay, let's back up just a second. What did you have in place prior to going out and raising money? So we had tested Birchbox for two months while we were in business school. So we had a beta test and we thought it was really successful. And so it will clearly be easy to raise money. With friends and family, you tested no it? No friends and family. No friends and family. We so you just put it on the internet? We emailed people and put it on the internet. So we emailed people and we said, you know us, please don't sign up because you'll <laughs> skew our data because you you love us. Um, please forward it on to your law school, your consultant firm, you know, your you know, mom groups and get people who don't know us. And see what they'll do with it. Exactly. So that's how we launched our test. And then we had three things we wanted to measure, which was mainly would people pay for samples? The second, would that translate to the full size sale? Because you could, we, from the very beginning, were always more than just sampling. We were always try and then learn editorial and then buy. So you How are you buy getting the samples at this point? Directly from the brands. So you were going to the brands and saying, we're starting a company, we want samples, and eventually this could amount to something good for you? Yes. Well, we were, I was much more bold than that. Cold, I cold emailed brands. I like to cold email. I read that you and cold emailed Steve Jobs. I did. And he responded in less than a day. What did the email say? I was going to business school and they were offering us IBM ThinkPads. That was the only computer that Harvard was offering and basically sanctioning, saying like, everyone in your class is going to have an IBM ThinkPad. Here's an offer on a great one. And I had been using, you know, Apple since I can remember. And I emailed him basically saying, like, are you going to let this happen? That, you know, all of these leaders are going to business school and you have no branding and no presence amongst this, what I think is like an important group. I mean, there's so many important groups, but this feels like an important group. Did he send you a MacBook? He gave me the same deal on a MacBook that you could get on the ThinkPad, which is funny because of two reasons. Yes, he responded, which was amazing. <laughs> but no, he didn't just give it to me. He sold it to me. Um, so I bought it through somebody directly <laughs> And it was cool, very cool, and um, a great reminder of the power of just sending a message that has relevance um, and that doesn't ask a lot from somebody, although mm -hmm. this one maybe was a lot. Um, but, but it's persuasive. If you if you become the computer supplier to Harvard Business School, that's some good business. And by the way, those people tend to go on and do good things, so they might put those computers in their own company someday. Right. So go back to the point now where you're trying to convince brands to give you their products. Yes. Yeah, so the first ask wasn't to ask for the samples. The first ask was for five minutes of time for feedback. Um, we made a bold statement. I said we were going to reimagine the beauty industry online and then ask them for five minutes to give feedback and use that time in a call to, you know, have the conversation, answer questions, and then ask for a meeting to do the test. And it worked, you know, really well. Um, you know, we didn't have to email that many people to get a lot of responses quickly and a willingness to test. And look, it came with a ton of skepticism. Basically, every single person we met with said, 
This is not going to work, but if it did, it would be an amazing. So why not test it, right? Um, but there wasn't a like, oh, you crack the code. You know, it wasn't that. So when you left those meetings, what was going through your mind? I mean, winning. I basically do not hear negativity in meetings. I don't hear no. I do not hear this isn't going to work or we will not work with you. I hear, in my mind, I hear, I just didn't say that right. Like, I just need to explain it to them again because it's, it's on you. definitely going to work. You know, like it's I just thought you're wrong. I mean, it's 100 percent going to work. I had this blind, you know, optimism and confidence that. Do you not have that anymore? You said had. Well, no, I think that there is a lot of that. But I think as you get more, as you get bigger, as you get more experience, I think you're not blind to anything. So I still have so much confidence and so much belief that you can create your own reality. But I also acknowledge and understand that, you know, not everything is just possible by willing it to be possible. And one thing that is never in your control is timing of the market. And we were really fortunate with timing of the market. And I know people have this stigma against saying things like fortunate or lucky, but timing is a critical aspect of launching a company. And we had a great idea, but most importantly, it was a perfect time for both consumers and brands because we just all of a sudden solved a problem that whether people had articulated existed or not, it just was true. And we got there fast. Such a good point. So when you think about that and how to extrapolate that for others, how do you know when you're getting the timing right? Because there are plenty of people who go out and try and solve things, and it's just maybe they're too early to solving those things. I think that happens all the time. I mean, I think, I mean, it's it's impossible to know if something's well-timed, but, um, you know, the best thing I can suggest to anybody is to get the idea and the product out there as fast as possible. And And I think I just, the idea of being stealth never has resonated with me because iterating and then adapting as the world is changing so quickly feels like a critical aspect of going from alpha to beta to launch. Um, It's not like your alpha or your beta idea is going to ever be what the company is. I mean, it, it holds some of it, but you have to evolve as as the world is evolving. But to me, that's a critical point because I think the one thing, and I hear this from a lot of entrepreneurs, it's very scary when you want to put your idea out there initially because you don't know. You're experimenting. And there are a lot of entrepreneurs who don't put the idea out because it's not perfected yet. But to your point, you had to get it out there. You had to see what the market said about it in order to know how to perfect it. And I'm sure that there are, you know, look, differences for various industries. But in the case of what we're doing and and this kind of application, I've never once felt like the product was perfect. Today, it's not perfect. Really? What would you change about it? Do you have a list somewhere? I mean, it's it's not even that simple. It's just so nuanced. Our idea is so big and continuing to invest in the personalization and the relevance and even changing the DNA we give products and the DNA we give humans. I mean, I I say that, but I mean like the attributes we assign to personalize that. I have ideas for how to enhance that. That's a huge undertaking. Um, And then more literally, what's happening in the world of uh, in the world for consumers and where they're giving their data and our ability to access it has changed, you know, dramatically. So continuing to tap into that. 
um, you know, I'd say you're just always chasing the next thing and always wanting to rise to the next occasion for the consumer. And especially as a monthly product, every single month, it feels like you're just, it's the next hurdle, you know? Right. So it's not like you're ever done. That box always has to be filled with great products. And it needs to be better. You know, that's that's why people stay with Birchbox so long is that, you know, it isn't like the first box is great and then, like, we can chill, <laughs> you know. <laughs> How do you balance that desire to continue to improve with the necessity of having to run a business every day and 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 keeping things stable? It's really tough. And I think the most important thing is transitioning from being fully in the weeds to empowering people, empowering your team, because they are the ones that are actually feet on the ground. They have to balance resources um, with execution, and they are the best equipped to say, you know, this is how we are going to pace things. This is this is the order of importance, and we have agreed on that, even though it isn't always for their department or for their function. They have birch box in mind and it's mm-hmm. a it's a wonderful thing to see but it's really critical i think to make sure that the people who are doing the work are help setting the pace especially in our case where the team is so ambitious so i have no concern that they're setting a slow pace i don't have to worry that i have to you know ask people to go faster or crack any whip they're cracking their own whips this is your baby though how long did it take you to get to this point where I'm, you're it's a work in progress because, I mean, everything uh, – look, we, we've gotten to know each other over the years, but I would go back and say, okay, that ambitious young woman who wanted to be president, who got into Harvard Business School, who you, you started out in finance and in yeah. commercial real estate, also a very cutthroat industry, type A personality. Type A personalities tend to want to have control. How I do think- you separate that from – your hiring of employees and allowing people to really do great things. So you want to have control over success. And the reality of how to create success just changes over time and scale. When you have hundreds of employees um, trying to control success by controlling their actions is just a fallacy. That is not how to do it, right? So you want to control success. You want to control the outcome. And once you recognize that you know, what you were looking for in starting a company, which I describe as meeting myself, when you are lucky enough to hire really talented, ambitious people, they're just looking to meet themselves too. They want to push themselves. They want to fall down. They want to pick themselves up. They want to find the answers. And that is what's going to take your company to success. And once you recognize that that is the true key, that it can't be just about one person, can't be about three people, that the entire organization, that the entire collective consciousness has to have this shared belief. I mean, it is so much more powerful. It is way less lonely. And it is an exercise and it's not simple. And you asked me how long it take it 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 takes. It's an everyday reminder. But when you recognize that you have to do what's best for the greater goal, for the massive vision, for the massive ambition, then that is what guides you. And it's it's a new skill set. And then you have ambition around acquiring the new skill set, right? How am I going to be a leader that people love to work for, that, that, you know, is really able to scale? Different people have different ideas about leadership. Mm-hmm. How important is that to you, that your employees love you and want to work for you? It's really important for me because 
of, you know, maybe something that you share and we all share, which is just this reality of how you want to spend your time and work being such a massive part of your time. And one of the motivations um, for starting a company, but now just the major motivation is this opportunity to change this paradigm around, you know, work being work and, you know, needing to kind of like escape it and instead try to make it a place that is worthy of your talent and worthy of your time, um, worthy of your emotions, your good ones, your bad ones. And I think to have something that we go do every day where we really love the people we're doing it with. Um, and and then love is a complicated word, but it's respect. It's being challenged. Um, it's demanding. I think people that come to Birchbox are looking to be challenged um, and they're looking for something demanding. So you've gone now into physical locations. 2014, you built your first store here in brick and mortar location here in New York, mm-hmm. and you're expanding in Paris. You have a new location coming there. You have yes. one already. Yes. How did that decision evolve? So the decision was something we were considering for um, a little bit, and we were testing pop-ups for a few years. And when we started looking at consumer research around who was our beauty consumer, how did it compare to the industry, we had a very profound realization, which was the that we were over-indexing in a woman that the industry was not focused on and was not catering to. So the beauty industry obviously really focused on a woman who loves beauty, who's obsessed with beauty, loves watching all those YouTube videos, loves hanging out in a beauty store, but, you know, not really prioritizing an average relationship with beauty. And therefore, when we looked at the data, that average woman represented a very small piece of revenue at all of those beauty stores. And she represented the vast majority of Birchbox's revenue, customer Mm. base. And we thought, oh my gosh, we are acquiring the most unlikely beauty consumer. So that was realization one. But when we layered that on with how her behavior changes, my head basically exploded. So we acquire this beauty normal customer who starts off as somebody who spends a lot less than a beauty buff, a junkie in beauty, right? But 12 months into Birchbox, she doubles her spend in beauty. So we completely change her relationship in beauty. And that just got me so excited, this idea of serving a new customer, competing much more with non-consumption than just with the existing dollars that are out there. So growing the pie. And so when we started getting excited about the beauty majority, we thought, well, we want to build her destination, her home. And if we are going to do that, we have to consider being multi-channel and consider whether we can be you know, online first, digital first, but brick and mortar as well, because none of us shop for any category in a single channel. And to be the destination, I think that, you know, to us meant we had to really consider is offline a part of that. Um, And that's what got us to start testing it. And it has been such a great success. We will definitely be continuing to look at brick and mortar, but as a digital first company. So digital will always be the majority of revenue, but I do see brick and mortar in our future. And you're also getting into products now. We started launching products um, a couple of years ago as well. So our own brands, um, and that is definitely a part of the future too. So we developed a line called Love of Color, LOC. And every season we just launch a very tight curated, these are the shades that are cool lip and eye and cheek will come soon this is the finish that is cool right now sometimes it's shimmery sometimes it's matte so we launch it every season we launch it in small sizes you can buy a whole collection for fifty dollars so it's very affordable you can get through it in a season and you can be done um and so that's one line and then we launched arrow 
based on the athleisure fashion trend. Um, and it's been doing phenomenally well. So really thinking about our core customer, beauty in the context of her life, not beauty as life, and we'll continue to look for those opportunities too. And in addition to all of that success, uh, like so many companies, you've gone through some growing pains. You've had to lay people off. Yep. Your co-founder is no longer in, in playing a management role with the company. Mm-hmm. What did you learn through those experiences? How, how tough was that? In especially yeah. laying people off and your close friend who created this with you leaving. Yeah, I mean, I think you, every time the hardest thing happens, you think like this is the hardest thing and then it's going to have to get better than this, right? And for for me, it got harder before it got easier. Um, not that it's ever easy, but before I think I could recognize how important it was for Birchbox to go through this transition. I've always really believed and said that what we have the opportunity to do is so rare, so we're going to do it. We're going to build a forever company. This isn't a flip. This isn't a fad. This is a big idea to build a home for the beauty majority. And the reality of trying to build something forever is that it isn't just about what you're doing internally. Right? It's not just about the strategy or the execution of that strategy. It's always in the context of the macro environment again and the financing environment. And when that changes, as an entrepreneur, you know, especially a first-time entrepreneur, sometimes you feel bitter. You're like, why would that impact my business that's going so well? You know, I should be <laughs> insulated and protected from this because this is, I mean, one of the most successful e-commerce companies of all time on the least amount of paid in capital, I mean, for sure. So, you know, you kind of get bitter, but you start to recognize, well, my job is just as much about responding and managing that as it is about the strategy, the vision, and the execution. And learning that and experiencing how to do that makes me feel like the ground has never been more solid beneath us, right? Because you have to learn how to operate in all of those different environments if you're going to be forever. Everybody knows that all the best companies that have ever existed go through those different hard times, that it's really a critical part of building the cultural strength that you need to build something that, you know, forever, that lasting and that resilient. And it's a really critical part of forcing you to make hard decisions. And for me, one of the most valuable lessons that I've learned in all of this is the power of prioritization, I know, I mean, I'm definitely not the first person to talk about it, but when you have infinite resources almost, it feels like you can start to really kind of think horizontally about priorities and segment teams off and say, like, they are different priorities, right? Um, because you want to kind of move a lot of different things forward at the same time. And what I have seen is the power of vertical priorities and having the whole team think about something, even for a short period of time, and then move to the next thing. You can move more quickly. Everybody is so much more bought in emotionally. This is when you have more limitations on your resources. Yes, I really see it. I mean, I really see the power. Like, we're we're able to tackle things so much more f- quickly, so much more effectively, and with so much heart and, you know, passion behind the execution of it because everybody is fighting to have this be successful and then the next thing be successful together. Um, And, you know, if you had talked to me while it was happening, there's no way I would have been able to articulate, you know, the positive coming out of it. But it's one of the best things that, you know, I think we've ever had to go through because I believe that we all feel so much more like operators now. We all believe, 
you know, our success and what we've been able to create at Birchbox, it isn't just about great timing or having like the flash of a good idea. We know how to operate the hell out of what we're doing. Um, and the company is in the strongest place it's ever been in every sense. Best culture surveys we've ever had, you know, ahead of our plans for profitability, um, the biggest the company's ever been. So, I mean, thank God I can say all those things, right? Um, and that is a really privileged place to be. But but we had to go through it to become that strong. Such a valuable lesson. Everyone talks about the best advice. I want to know what the oh. worst advice you have received along the way is. I think one that stands out was um, really trying to push us to go into multiple multiple verticals very quickly um, because we were seeing so much success and we had such a captive audience. And, you know, those were your investors saying to you do this. Some of our advisors and investors, you know, they were seeing because, you know, we created something and then there was a lot of people jumping on the bandwagon of subscription. Right. Um, and in their mind, you know, like taking something that we had created. How did and you push back on that, considering that they probably had been around longer than you had and yeah. some of them might be financing what you're trying to do? Of course. I mean, we didn't immediately. We said, let's we're going to think about it. Haley and I said, we're going to think about it. We're going to look at the different opportunities. And we just came back and said, we think that beauty is a really unique industry for this um, for a variety of reasons. Well, first of all, beauty is, you know, one of the largest mature industries that exists. It's a $500 billion industry and it's the fastest growing. So of all the mature industries, it's still the fastest growing. We are in the fastest growing subcategory of a, you know, prestige online beauty. So we said, you know, in and of itself, this is multi-billion dollar opportunity. So we're not thinking small. And I think that's really critical um, for, you know, your investors to hear. It isn't like we're tired. It isn't like we're not ambitious. Um, but the second thing we were able to talk to them about is how unique the beauty industry was to have the product experience that, that we had created around having high margins, um, which actually facilitate sampling, the sampling behavior, obviously being a critical part of it. And then just like the influx of product development and brand development. So we were never going to be at risk of having one supplier or two large suppliers. There's always going to be thousands of great suppliers for us to choose from to be able to deliver this experience, deliver at full price, deliver a high margin, um, eventually being able to verticalize using all of the same great labs that all of the best brands use. So we were able to show them like we were very thoughtful. We thought about it. We really think that this is a category for us to own and that it represents a massive win for all of us. So that's how. <laughs> Just you had information on your side. Yeah, I think I mean, and I think we thought about it. And I think that allows you to have a really great conversation with your investors and advisors, not just reacting and saying you're wrong, you know, and being emotional about it, because we weren't sure they were wrong. We wanted to be thoughtful. Um, and we wanted to make sure that we weren't, you know, we were also very ambitious. So it wasn't like our, our idea was to, to just stay in beauty because we were worried um, but when we were like, wow, this is just so big. Um, we want to do this. And it's so compelling. And and we really feel like we can't take our eye off the ball. So instead, we did other crazy things like acquire a business that year um, and take us into three new countries um, and launch Birchbox Mans for grooming, um, which was, you know, close enough to home, but still felt crazy. So I think they saw, OK, well, they're definitely not relaxed. <laughs> they're definitely going for it. Um, and... And so we've been going for it. Katya Beauchamp, thank you so much. My pleasure. Thanks so much for listening to another episode of No Limits. 
If you like what you heard, please make sure to subscribe, rate us, tell your friends. And if there's someone you think we should have on the show, let me know. You can tweet me at Rebecca Jarvis. And of course, you can follow along with us behind the scenes on Facebook, Instagram and Snapchat. And special thanks to the team here at ABC that helps make this happen. It is a big one. Taylor Dunn, Josh Cohan, Andrew Kelb, Michelle Boncardo, Steve Jones, Erica Scott, and Elizabeth Hecht. And join me next Tuesday for an all-new episode of No Limits with Rebecca Jarvis. Until then, take care, be well. Hey, I'm Andy Mitchell, a New York Times bestselling author. And I'm Sabrina Kohlberg, a morning television producer. We're moms of toddlers and best friends of 20 years. And we both love to talk about being parents, yes, but also pop culture. So we're combining our two interests by talking to celebrities, writers, and fellow scholars of TV and movies. Cinema, really. About what we all can learn from the fictional moms we love to watch. From ABC Audio and Good Morning America, Pop Culture Moms is out now wherever you listen to podcasts.